With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. SUAS News podcast series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, as always, for it's been like 10 years now, a decade of goodness. Uh, and we're, we're going to keep that tradition. And uh, this is, we usually do some current event stuff, but right now we're going to launch into one big, almost 20-year-old uh, current event. So we'll bring on our guest. Uh, Mr. Terry McVenus, and he's the president and CEO of the Radio Technical Committee for Aeronautics, which you may know by the acronym of the RTCA. Hello, Terry. Hi, Patrick. How are you today? I'm doing good. It's uh, another wonderful sunny day in California. I can't complain. Good deal. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think this is going to be an interesting podcast. I mean, basically the premise of uh, the SUS News is really kind of the business of drones and, you know, how are you going to go out there and uh, make money and what's kind of expected as a community, a member of a community that has a long and rich history. And um, RTCA, or the Radio Technical Committee for Aeronautics, has a, let's say, a a working history in this field. And, um, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to this. I think this is going to be uh, enlightening to a lot of folks. But so before we like roll into all of that, because we got a lot to unpack here, possibly you could give us a uh, brief bio and how you came to work with the RTCA. Well, sure. First of all, Patrick, thanks for inviting me to participate today. I'm looking forward to our, our discussion and uh, hope it brings some some valuable uh, information and perspectives, perhaps to your to your audience. Um, well, I started out my career out of college, actually working for the Boeing company up in Seattle. Um, I spent a little bit over a year there and decided that I wanted to fly airplanes more than I wanted to design them, so uh, I, I left Boeing after about a year and a half and um, uh, finished up some of my flight training and went to work for the airlines um, where I spent 30 years as a, as a pilot for a, first as a, as a small regional carrier out of Denver and then eventually uh, ended my career after, after 30 years with, with U.S. Airways. Um, during that time at the airlines, I got very heavily involved in the safety area both with the company and, and uh, with the Airline Pilots Association. I, um, uh, right after 9-11, um, 
was asked to come to D.C. to kind of help out Alpo with some of the things they were working on as post in post 9/11. And uh, a couple years later, I found myself as the executive air safety chairman for Alpo, where we did a lot of work coordinating with about 50 airlines that were part of Alpo, uh, some of the different representatives at the airlines, uh, working on different safety initiatives around things like aircraft design. Um, airports, acts investigation, human factors, training, uh, air traffic control issues. Um, I left, I left uh, the airlines uh, in 2008, went back to Boeing, um, where I, I spent 10 years as their director of system safety and regulatory affairs. So worked uh, with a lot of our airline customers around the world on, on different safety initiatives as well as uh, Different governments uh, around the world helping to improve their their uh, certification and uh, operational standards uh, to help raise the safety bar uh, on a worldwide basis. Um, I decided I wanted to retire uh, and I was enjoying a lot of downtime. And then the phone rang and uh, had a call. Got convinced to uh, come to Washington D.C. about four years ago. Uh, to take over the presidency at, at RTCA, um, where I've been since uh, about Dece December of 2018. Um, during my career, I've, I've chaired a number of different aviation rulemaking committees. I um, uh, was a member of the commercial aviation safety team uh, for a number of years. Um, also worked on the as one of the industry chairs for the um, uh, was an aviation rule committee. The Aviation Rulemaking Committee that developed the ASIAS program, the Aviation Safety Information Analysis and Sharing Program, which is obviously a, as maybe some of your audience knows is a pretty standard way of doing business now with the airlines and sharing safety data and safety information. So, uh, a long career in traditional uh, aviation, I'd say, uh, and so now find myself in the, another part of the industry at RTCA. All right. Sounds like you have a little bit of experience. I'm going to go out on a limb and give you the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> now, um, you know, so, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to, this, this is one thing. Okay, so, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with the airlines besides, you know, riding coach and eating peanuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great back there. I'll leave the driving to someone else. Now, um, you know, the, people, the, the airline industry, um, I think the airline industry doesn't really get the credit that it deserves for safety, you know, and, and this isn't a bash for the FAA, but the FAA is like, we have the safest, you know, airspace in the world, you know, and okay, going to give you that, but I, I really believe uh, the driver on that is... Uh, Let's see, and I don't want to just single out one union because I know that there's other pilot unions um, and there's other pilot unions around the world, but the airlines, all of the maintenance people and the people that work there and all the rest of that, I mean, really, you know, those people are working their butts off to make sure that that whole thing is safe. Is that a fair statement? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, you know, a big expectation by the traveling public, um, and I'll include uh, big expectation from folks that ship their cargo, that mm -hmm. uh, the passenger or your cargo is going to arrive at its destination safely. That's the expectation. Um, and tremendous work has gone into 
creating that safe uh, system that we have today. Um, you know, we, we've had a, roughly an 80, 85% reduction in the accident rate over the last 30 years. And all of that was because of a tremendous amount of effort by both industry and, and, and the FAA, but and, in, and, and other governments around the world too, and other parts of the industry. Uh, but it really is everybody really working together, um, taking a, a uh, and I think the real advances in, in the last 20 years have been taking more of a, a proactive look at, you know, what is the data out there telling us? Where are some of the issues that need to be addressed before there's an accident? Get those things fixed so that we can prevent that accident from happening in the future. And the you know, only way you do that is, again, is with people working together, you know, the, the pilots, the mechanics, the airlines, the, the FAA, all working together towards that common goal. And, and we've had some tremendous progress over the years to, to create the system that we have. I, I agree. And, and I think that kind of sets the baseline, you know, for this podcast. Because, you know, there, there are a lot of people, and again, I'm, I'm not going to deride the droners because I am a droner, but, you know, even, even in the early days, uh, you know, when you had to build your own system before you could go to Best Buy and, and buy a system. <clears throat> Some of that safety part of that is built in. You, you know, lose your investment or, you know, potentially hurt someone or, you know, so there's, there's things to think about. And when you're going to go and you're going to, let's say, enter a space, and in this case, you know, uh, the, the airspace that's already um, occupied. So you're kind of like the new kid on the block, right? And I, I learned this one. I've been at it for 20 years. <laughs> the new kid on the block. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And yada, yada, yada. And so everything you just kind of ran through, there are a lot of people that are involved in this who are very serious. And I think the seriousness shows in the safety record. I mean, you know, we're, I, I would say, you know, as a traveling public, we're, we're spoiled, you know? I mean, uh, when, when the cogs are spinning, there's some issues right now, but we, you know, regularly, um, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, get to your destination, the price of the ticket's very reasonable. I don't even know how these people make money, you know? I don't <laughs> think it's an airline ticket sales because... You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of pieces to the machine, and there's, uh, you know, besides the safety stuff, you know, the dispatch, um, the people behind the scenes making it all happen. So I think we take that for granted. It's kind of like magic, you know. You get on uh, Southwest or, where, you know, whatever airline, you're like, yeah, and I'm kicking my feet up and uh, having a good old time, and it's great. And I think uh, people kind of uh, take for granted all of the back end that's gone into so I think that's a good baseline for what we're going to talk about. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure, you know, some of the people that I know, because, you know, for all, um, you know, let's say uh, full disclosure, I worked with the, and we talked about this before we had a conversation a few months ago, but I was on the, um, the, the SC-203, the lightly regulated uh, small unmanned aircraft systems, Working or uh, working group, you know, back in circa 2004. So, but we'll go we'll go into that. Um, and you, know, you probably remember like Joe Boyd. Do you remember Joe Boyd? He was an Alpha guy. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, Ellis Charnoff. You remember Ellis? Yep. I remember Ellis? Yep. 
He's a, he was a good guy. He uh, both of those guys were good guys. Um, but you know, I'm serious. This is their this is their life. So, yeah. and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that too. So before we do that, let me, why don't you, uh, if, if possible, for the listener benefit, um, you know, we talked about some of that the back end behind, um, you know, this 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 industry. Um, maybe you could kind of tell the listeners like a, an overview of, of what RTCA does and history. And I know that's, that's probably encompassing a lot, <laughs> but I think it, we have to, you have to kind of lay it out so people understand some of that back end we already talked about. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a, a great way to set a foundation here about RTCA. Um, you know, RTCA has been around a long time. They were established uh, back in 1935, um, and um, the the goal then is for that organization is pretty, kind of the same as it even is today. It's to, to bring government and industry together to to solve some of the technical issues that aviation faces. Um, the first standard that we wrote uh, was in 1939. That was a standard for um, anti-static radio antennas, so how you, how you had to design your radio antennas to keep this from static buildup. Um, and so that was our very first standard that we wrote back in 1939. Um, if you look back over the career, we, we, we or over the history, we've got uh, quite the record of accomplishment. Many of the, the uh, um, uh, technical advances that have gone, gone gone along during the years were because of work that was done at RTCA and in developing those 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 performance standards and I'll talk a little bit more about those here in a bit um, we um, we've been the recipient of two Collier awards um, the first one in 1948 was RTCA that actually developed um, what was then a, a new air traffic control system that was really the basis for, uh, it was a plan for the development and implementation of, of air navigation and air traffic control that would help facilitate uh, unlimited aircraft operations during um, all, all weather conditions. And so RTCA received a Collier Award for that in 1948. And then uh, in 2007, uh, we were part of a group that uh, also received a Collier Award for the development of the standards around ADSB, um, so we've got a, quite the record of accomplishment, and, and um, as I say, it really has been the, the basis of a lot of the advancements and technology that have happened in aviation over the year. Um, today, we we continue to to provide that I'd say that forum um, for bringing um, a consensus industry voice um, together with the government. Uh, to develop cooperation on developing concepts of um, operations in the air traffic control system along with some of the standards and different guidelines that are needed to implement some of the new systems that, that go on aircraft. So that's a, a little bit of the history. Let's say it's, it's, a, it's a, all based upon bringing industry and government together, develop a consensus uh, uh, in terms of what the minimum operational performance needs to be in a particular system. Uh, and then uh, the FAA can utilize that, that standard, that performance standard, uh, as part of a, a technical standard order or an advisory circular that just references in the, 
the uh, RTCA standard for um, for operations, so that then then companies can go, you know, design, build, and then get it certified. Well, you know, like I said, there was going to be a lot to unpack on that one, but <laughs> you know, some of the technological advances that um, you talked about again go back to our original baseline of the safety of, mm-hmm. you know, the part 121, part 135. Yeah. For anyone that's flown, I don't have lots of experience flying the plane. I uh, I have flown the plane, as might mainly as a guest. And of course, there there is really not a lot of airspace in California that's not totally crowded. You know, I even uh, made the joke that, you know, like a hot dog stand would probably clean up, you know, at 4,000 feet if you could, you know, get the dog on the fly. Because there's so much going on, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's amazing. You hear the radio chatter and, you know, it's like I'm not even on the, <laughs> the commercial channels. I'm like, where are all these people, you know? Um and it is hard to see and all the rest of that stuff. So the technology, uh, and that was even in a uh, one, I don't know, one, eight, two, one thousand with the glass cockpit, which is very nice if you can afford the the gate fee. <laughs> you know, any red on the weather thing, that's bad. Don't don't fly into that. But uh, anyway, so you know, there's like kind of an overload of information and the sight, smell, uh, smells and sounds. Um, so I, I, I think that a lot of that is discounted. So the technology is really, let's say, aided or, or helped um, us as a species fly around and fly around safely. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of discounted. But, you know, and then you talk about this, it's like, okay, well, you know, we, we, we got together and, uh, you know, the industry came in and, you know, we, we, we uh, came together and we wrote this standard. And it sounds rather simple. <laughs> for those uninitiated it's not really that way um, the last guest I had on was Doug Marshall do you know Doug? no I don't he's been around he was also on the uh, SE203 back in the day and uh, you know I asked him about his idea of standards and he's like oh, you know depends on who you have in the room and sometimes it can get you know, con- kind of contentious, which I was known for a lot of carousing. If you ask around, I've, <laughs> over the years, I got this uh, reputation as a, as a carouser. But, you know, he said, he's like, hey, you, know, you, can, you can get wrapped around the axle for like a whole day on specific nomenclature, which you can. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I always uh, describe it kind of as the fly, five blind monks describing the elephant, you know. One's got a hold of the truck, one's got a hold of the tail, one's got a hold of the ear. So you get these people in here with different views, and they're like, hey, you know, you're, I don't know what you're talking about over there, buddy. This thing is, you know, we got this, this truck thing going, and uh, it, it can get a little contentious. But again, it goes back to that, that seriousness, and which we will get into here in a minute, which I guess, actually I guess we could kind of get into that, because... You know, there's the mechanics of standard development, and I think a lot of people, you know, there is an adoption thing with the FAA. You talked about how they could use it for an AC, or and probably there's a lot of people that don't even know what an AC is. It's an advisory circular. Right. And, and even the drone thing used to be kind of 
run by an advisory circular. I'm that old that I remember that. <laughs> yes, you could fly in class Bravo airspace. Uh, you didn't have to tell anyone. You could do whatever you wanted to do um, and fly the drone around, you know, and people flew beyond visual line of sight and all of that. And we'll, we'll get into, uh, there was a bunch of people when the cat got out of the satchel on that one that were like, holy mackerel, what, what's going on here? And it, that was, there were some folks over at the AOPA uh, when the ADSB thing was going on and FAA was like, yeah, you know, we, uh, we want to do this ADSB and it's all about safety. And AOPA was like, well, if you want to talk about safety, we got to talk about these, you know, commercial drone guys and what they want to do. And it, and it goes back and forth and everybody has their, you know, dog in this fight. But, so, you know, uh, the FAA was like, all right, well, geez, you know, we're going to need to do, we're going to need to get some standards for this drone thing because I don't think that just flying beyond visual line of sight willy-nilly, however you want, uh, in class Bravo airspace is going to work for everybody, you know. It did, I mean, he called the tower and, hey, we're going to be flying here and doing this and you work it out with these people, but... The feedback from the uh, tower was always like, hey, we're, we're already overworked. We're not getting paid mm-hmm. to service these aircraft. We've got, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's, we're up to our necks and alligators here. So, you know, so everybody had kind of their own view of this deal. So, like, okay, we're going to do this standard thing. We're going to put this group together. And, you know, John Walker. John Walker was heading it up. And we all got together, you know, and came together into the tent. And uh, started working on the uh, standards. And uh, again, everybody had that view of the elephant. You know, here I am. I was like really the only commercial guy advocating for the use of unmanned aircraft at the time. There were some military people uh, that were, you know, we had the war on terror thing going and they wanted to develop products and yada, yada. But mainly I was the only commercial guy. And uh, got kind of the baptism of fire because, you know, boom, here they were. Here were the... uh, you know, there, there was Joe Boyd from Alpa, you know, he's like, you know, I'm up here flying people around and this is very serious and we got to do this. And, you know, the way that we uh, do aviation is X, Y, and Z. And we're going to sit down here and talk about this. And this is what needs to be done. You guys need some, you know, certification. And, you know, so, and then, and then it kind of started to mushroom. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give away too much of it. It's a, it's a great story. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, there's this long laundry list, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, okay. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I really thought about that as being a, you know, it's a business guy was like, man, this is really involved, you know. Like you were saying, you know, you, you worked for Boeing. There were people that worked for Boeing. There were people that worked for, you know, other big DOD contractors who have the money to be able to sit there and and do uh, standards for for a while, and that was mm-hmm. one of the disadvantages I had. It's like cost me money to travel, cost me time. I don't feel like uh, I don't want to say like I don't feel like I was getting credit for that. I mean, people kind of understood that, but mo- you know, it was coming out of my pocket. I was working for a group called RCAPA, which is Remote Control Aerial Photography Association, and it took a lot of effort to be a part of this um, standards thing. So the mechanics of it for me were like, wow, this is slow. It's really involved. It's deep. Um, you know, people are, are going way 
hard over on this deal. And uh, so that was some of the perspective that I had. But maybe, you know, you could, cause you, you know, there are, there's a ton of standards. Maybe you could talk about the mechanics of this, a little bit of the standards development. But also, I mean, I know it's got to be less contentious for certain aspects, like, you know, you mentioned the static for the radio thing. Okay, mm -hmm. we get a couple of experts in the room. These guys are SMEs. They know about, you know, propagation and, and, and radio and frequency, and they know all this stuff. You're going to get in the room. There's, there's no blowing smoke. These guys all know what's cooking, and they get yeah. together and they work on something. And so maybe you could, like, something simple like that, is that, I mean, how long does that usually take? Yeah, in that case, I think it took probably a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, right. And if you look, and you look back on, you know, what, what was SC203, which was way before my time, but um, you, your experience, I think, was is typical of what I've heard others' experience was in, in terms of the difficulty in bringing all these um, interested parties together, but with sometimes with different goals in mind. And that's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Right. You know, because that's, I mean, that's almost, uh, you know, the, the small drone thing is almost a 20-year history, you know, which somewhere, yeah. i got to be honest, if I sat there, and again, I didn't know how the mechanics of all of this worked. And here, here, you know, the plucky kid with a gleam in his eye, thinking, you know, oh, okay, so we sit down, and this is kind of like a, you know, a deal where we cash out, you know, some uh, standard, you know, and we, you know, then there's a little bit of grousing or copious amounts of grousing, whatever, you know, as the thing goes, but you get you know, hammered out, you understand people's position, you become aware of things, you know, all right, well, we turn this deal out, and now the FAA is going to go, oh, golly, this is, this is great. Man, you guys really kicked butt on this one. You should be proud. We're going to adopt this because it's great. I, this is fantastic, <laughs> which is not really the case. Uh, so that's where the, the gleam started to diminish, <laughs> you know, is, uh, you know, talking to them, you know, I'm like, hey, man, you know, I sat over here, I've traveled all over the country, I've weeks and weeks of time, I've done the telephone, the telecons, I did all this stuff, and we worked on this, and now you're saying bring us a different rock. And it's a family show, and I'm not going to say what I, you know, telling the technical need from the FAA on that one. <laughs> Folks can imagine, um, you know, and then uh, as that was going down, you know, there were, let's say the, the interests, you know, people, again, had their own view. You know, here I am, I want to go out here and do aerial photography, and I want to fly at a low altitude, and I want to do X, Y, and Z. And then you have other players that are like, hey, you know, I want to test uh, scan eagles. i got to test those before I saw them in the military, and we're, we're doing testing out here in Class G airspace. And, you know, so then, then you get the AOPA folks, and you get the HAI folks, you know, and they're like, wait a minute. The wings of this thing are covered in Kevlar? You know, oh, man, no, Kevlar. You, know, you get your uh, Vietnam veteran helicopter pilots, and they're thinking Kevlar. Now, I sat on Kevlar, so I didn't get shot in the butt while I'm flying my helicopter, right? 
And if uh, we get some Kevlar in the tail rotor, uh, you know, it could be a challenging, sporty situation. So we've got to talk about this. So, you know, all of this stuff gets thrown into the funnel, and then it's supposed to come out as a standard. So it's not, um, how do you say? It's not, you go in thinking one thing, and you come out going, whew, man, there's like a gazillion perspectives on this thing. You, you see a lot yeah. of that in standards work? Yeah, you do. Um, it it, it kind of depends. Um, you know, traditionally, if you're looking at a single-use case of a particular, say, box, um, bringing those, you know, stakeholders together, um, they kind of have a common goal. And there's a common application for what you're tr- going to try to utilize this box for. That's a much easier uh, tasking to come up with, you know, a, a, a consensus-based uh, operational performance standard that's going to be acceptable to everybody, both government and industry. But when you start talking, especially when you start talking different use cases um, that um, the UAS world is talking about, it gets very complicated very quickly. I think you've outlined it very well in terms of some of the, the different um, priorities people have and the different different perspectives they have, and, and that becomes very difficult. I think, you know, one of the things that I keep harping on folks, both from industry and the FAA, is when you – if we're going to develop a uh, – put together a new, new committee, is let's be very clear right up front exactly – what it is that you need, how it's going to be used, and when do you need this standard by. Lay it out very clearly from the beginning. And uh, and that can really eliminate a lot of these different sidebar conversations and things going on all over the place. You, the, the taskings have to be very specific uh, to help, I think, keep things in focus and to make things more efficient in getting a standard out. Um, to, you know, in the case of SC-203, you know, I think it was a case of everybody was trying to boil the ocean with, with one committee, and there wasn't, it, it needed a little bit more, uh, a more focused direction, and which is one of the things, when I understand one of the reasons SC-203 got shut down was, was well, to help, help get some more, you know, a little bit more focused direction. I think you're being generous with boil the ocean. I think it was like four oceans in the seven seas all at one time. And, uh, you know, so that was tough. And, and to be fair, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I, uh, somebody, some people are like, oh, the Seagan guy's negative. And, you know, he's such a Debbie Downer or whatever. But to be fair, so, you know, it kind of goes back to the industry can do, you know, the standard and you guys. I mean, how many uh, how many uh, let's say unmanned aircraft standards do you guys have? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, not off the top of my head, but probably five or six. Some are actually going through revisions already, so some of them are fairly mature. But um, <laughs> probably five or six now. Yeah. Okay. So you know, there's and, and I did want to you know that was another thing with the timeline is the revisions and. Let's say the difference in technology from the different generations. So this is this is another one, and I kind of call myself a little bit of an in-betweener on the technology thing. Like I'm not a digital native, but you know, technology's been a part of my life since you know 
probably age 10, you know, we had the TSR-80 at home, right, and video games, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so where we are today is you talk to most people who go down to Best Buy and buy a drone, and they like, oh, I'm, I'm using my cell phone. And I don't, I, I'm sorry, you know, uh, I can't even get a good stinking phone call. And I'm in the capital of California, you know, which is supposedly the most like technologically advanced state. It's like, can, can I? I don't even want. I, I don't need the internet, you know. Just a good phone call, you know. And everybody's like, I'm going to be controlling my drone with a phone, and I'm going to be doing this, and I'm going to have my lance, which is, you know, I'm not impressed with the lance thing, the table reservation system. I think that's. I, I don't even understand how anybody even put that together, but whatever. Uh, and the rest of it, you know, like I'm, I'm going to be getting my uh, all of my weather data and all of my ATC data and all the rest of this on my phone. I, I, I think that they're um, wishful thinking, you know, and especially when you talk to people in the uh, in the aviation world who do it professionally, you know, it's like, hey, you know, oh yeah, we have. Uh, Intermittent failures with the flight computer all the time. Nobody cares. It's great. It'll work. It works, you know. Uh, and I'm, of course, I'm, I'm being facetious, but you know, you get on a plane. Oh, you know, the electronics work 65% of the time. It's great. Don't worry about it. You know, if uh, we'll have some, we'll throw you another bag of peanuts. It's going to be great. You'd be like, you know, what are you smoking, buddy? I'm not getting on that. You know, so I don't, I don't think that the uh, the droners really think about it. Uh, in that way. And it's the same with the cell phone apps. I got a cell phone app. You know, I teach uh, I've, uh, over the last five, six years, I teach drone in San Francisco for, you know, TV and uh, picture production. And uh, you got all kinds of problems. Video dropout, C2 dropout, you know, within 10 or 50 feet, depending upon the frequencies that are in the area, which is another one I want to get into when we get into the uh, AAM section of this talk but it's like none of this is reliable and the stuff's flying away and then uh, you know you want to you really want to rile up the man guys start talking about flyaways (laughs) (laughs) so that gets them all you know excited because you know they're up there and they don't want to meet up with something suck one through the the turbine you know could, could ruin the day so Anyway, with that said, uh, you know, the, 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 the FAA, this, this uh, NAS integration thing uh, is a two-way street, you know. So the, the yeah. FAA has to say, hey, we're going to adopt this standard. And this is, we talked a little bit before the call, I think it's uh, you're okay or Yaz has uh, put out a tender and they want to get a group of folks together and they're going to try and vet the 800 standards that are out there from the various groups from all around the world. And I think that they're they're figuring that they're going to pay about 390 euros a standard for someone to go in there and vet that. And, uh, you know, Debbie Downer over here, I'm like, you know, okay, first off the bat, there's not a large group of people that have the expertise and the background uh, to be able to effectively do that, in my estimation, because, uh, you know, you've been on the standards deal. You talked about how some of them are being revised. They... They're really not, standards are not a snapshot in time because the technology changes and it has to be, um, or has to be revisioned and updated people have to come back. It's not like building the, uh, you know, the pyramids and leaving them out there. They need maintenance work. 
So um, anyway, so they're going to go ahead and they're going to do this. I don't, I don't really think that that's enough money to vet it. Plus, somebody's going to have to put their reputation on that. Well, weren't you the person that vetted, you know, X, Y, Z? Well, yeah, I was. But I only got paid 400 bucks. And uh, if, I only, if I wanted to make, you know, $5 an hour, I could have went to Taco Bell, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I really think, you know, that maybe the communities come together, the standard groups to come together, and the government's got to step up and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to look at this and vet this ourselves. So mm-hmm. there, there is a regulatory component of that that I think those guys need to step up to the plate. Uh, and, and, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been a ton of work. And I don't think that, you know, again, people don't understand how much of your time and effort goes into this. And then a guy like you has got to do the cat herding. So I'm sure maybe you can. Uh, so it's like, you know, some, some of these standards have been going on for 20 years. I mean, you have to like, kind of go in and mediate, cat herd, do the rah-rah. What, what, what's that like? Well, um, yeah, really, really good question. Um, uh, the, I think one of the things that we always have to, in one way, things haven't been separated out enough in some respects. I mean, if you look at the work, for example, that we're doing in SC228, I mean, our focus is primarily on large UAS drones, you know, the large 121 equivalent sort of operation drones, not the small UAS. And um, and when you try to combine everything together into one, you run into a lot of the issues that we've already talked about. You've got too many competing interests in there. But but at the same time, um, we always like there's a it's really fun and and interesting. To, Look at new technologies and the standards that are required for those those individual vehicles or that individual you know box and all the great things it can do. But what we're not, I think, as an industry and as government is not doing well enough right now is to look at it. I think you brought it up: is how it all comes together. How is it all integrated into a into a system? I mean, you can do some amazing things with different UASs and advanced air mobility, um, amazing things. The technology, in some cases, is there, but what's not there is that that integrated plan of how they all get come come together. And um, you and and part of that challenge is that you you've got to you've got really different safety cases that you have to make as well. You know the the um, the level of risk that you need to protect against in a you know in a large UAS or a large 121 operation is not the same level of risk that you need to protect against in a in a small UAS. And so when you develop standards, you have to take that into account. So whether it's it's you know the technology of the box, if it's looking at different software standards, which is a whole other topic that kind of impacts all of this. You, you, these are the things that have to be taken into account is that level of risk that you're you're protecting against and um, um, that is I think probably the the largest challenge that we as an industry are facing right now you know and kind of related to that is I think too many people think the FAA's got some sort of magic wand that they can wave over everything and make it all work 
and that's just not right. the way it works. And at the same time, you know, industry is the one that actually has a lot of the solutions. Unfortunately, they have 150 different solutions <laughs> and that doesn't work either. So I think one of the, one of the things that the industry has to do and, and whether we're talking large UAS, small UAS or those in between is figuring out what are those three or four things that we that we need to be working on today, build on that, and then you know next year think about three or four things that we need to be working on then, and and take an in, incremental approach to this as opposed to again trying to boil the ocean all in one one sort of uh, mass attempt to get to solve the problem because when I say there's too many solutions. And the FA doesn't have a magic wand. <laughs> so. No, and this is this is great because I just I really wanted to hit on this, and you gave some sage advice to the unmanned community, and hopefully they're able to get this. So I'm going to drill down on it a little bit. So, um, you know, you you kind of mentioned this too in your bio, okay? So the concept is is you know the industry has to collect safety data and industry has to do some research and industry has got to back up their claims. And this is one of the, you know, I'm going to go Debbie Downer again, Egan guy, so negative is, um, Hey man, you know, you're going to have to pay for some research. And, and the reason I say that is because the, 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 the drone folks have wasted so much political capital, and you've been, I'm sure, long, around long enough to remember. I mean, these guys went into Congress and, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, and burrito delivery, and, you know, watch me fly the drone, and, you know, all the rest of the stuff. And people were all excited. You know, they were like, oh, God, this sounds great, you know. Um, all right, let's talk about the nuts and bolts. Well, Congressman Bag of Donuts? I feel like it's safe to fly at night. I feel like it's safe to, you know, fly in class bravo airspace. I feel like it's safe to, you know, deliver pizza. Okay. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I tell people, I go, so you think, okay, let me just get this straight. You know, I'm a simple guy, you know, slow learner. But are you telling me that you, you're going to, you, you're trying to get this person over here, these people, these elected people, to, uh, you know, come up with, you know, laws and regulations on, based upon your feelings? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, and I'm like, well, you're crazy. Because nobody, you know, nobody cares about your feelings. You know, maybe Valentine's Day. But besides that, no one's betting their career on that one. And if you go into a room, you know, with a bunch of uh, aviation professionals, and I've seen it happen, man. I watched the, the woman from the motion picture, uh, you know, uh, union. The guy from Alpa was like, well, you know, she's like, our drones are safe. You know, and he was like, well, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, and she's like, they got GPS on them. They're safe. And I'm like, well, I mean, if I may, let me interject here. It's like kind of a community liaison. I think what he's asking is you have any data that backs up your assertion. And she jumps up and says, I'm not on trial here, and storms out of the room, never to be seen again. You know? so, um, I think one of the mistakes has been from this industry, uh, a few years ago there was like a plastic bag floating around, and uh, you know, some airline pilot thought it was a drone, turned out it was a plastic bag. But you know, I went to the Plastic Bag Manufacturers uh, Association site, and they had data 
about their products. And I go, we're this, this $82 billion industry and drones and they're going to do all this. Time. And I go, I can't find a lick of industry data. Nothing. You yeah. know? And, uh, and even the all UAV coalition and all the rest of these groups, I go, you, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do spend some money and do some research. So when you go in, uh, talk to the congressperson or whatever else, you go, hey, uh, you know, we did some research, we funded some research with this group NASA, you know, yada yada yada. And this is what we're basing our assertions on. Now we're gonna run long, but we always do on this show because we always get down to the nitty gritty, the weeds, and all the rest of that. So that's one thing I think. So like you just said, okay, let's pick three things. All right, let's pick three things. And then let's make research, you know, safety risk analysis, you know, first you could start out on the back of the envelope and then you can go out and do the research to prove this, right? Um, Then you go in and you go into the room of people, the other industry uh, professionals, and you say, well, you know, we want to, I want to, you know, look for the corn weevil, you know, whatever. And here's the safety case, and the, this is we've done the, you know, impact studies and all the rest of this stuff, blah blah blah. And this is how we're going to keep it, and you know, whatever you're going to do. And then you go and you got a baseline to start with. Does that make sense to you? Am I, you know, am I crazy? No, absolutely. I mean, if you again, I'll go back to you know the the approach um, traditional aviation started going with back in the mid 90s and that was to take a data-driven approach to everything you know what is the data telling you about your operation and um, how do you if you implement a, a, a change in your operation that you think is uh, improving safety for example okay now measure it with the data and does it prove that your hypothesis is correct and it's, oh. it's an odd it's a circular thing, you know. It's uh, you know, safety risk management is continuing to, you know, look at the data, make changes, look at the data, make changes, look at the data, make changes, and so on. And that can, that adds that can this continues to grow your your um, you know your your process improvements and your your safety improvements by by utilizing that that data driven approach. It doesn't matter how you feel, as you said. What's the data telling you? And that's but, what it's all about. Exactly, and it's kind of this scientific approach, you know. So, and I, and I think you would, uh, and I've been after these people for years. So it's like you're, you're crazy, you know. If you, I, you just, well, and then I, I'm gonna, you know. So there was in one example, like I said, I went to the small UAV coalition. I go, yeah, your members got to put up some money. Well, you know, they take grouse. They don't want to do that. Okay, I talked to the woman that was, uh, you know, the regulatory liaison with 3D Robotics, which is no longer in business because they had this idea that they were going to do commercial operations in the NAS, and no one was going to regulate them. And I'm like, I don't know where <laughs> I want to get off the, the, the drugs because that's crazy talk. But anyway, uh, I approached her and I said, hey, you know, you guys have to put up some money and do some research on this so you at least have, you know, why would we do that when the FAA wants to do it? They said they'll pay for it. And I just said, okay, let you know, and I know that you're an industry guy, so you're probably going to take out of this one. I go, okay, let me, let me just, I, again, I got to distill it down, slow learner. Are you suggesting that you're going to let the regulator design the research and pay for the research on an industry that they know nothing about? 
Well, yeah, I get the money. I'm like, you're t- okay, you're totally unqualified. And that she was the chairperson of the, the Drone Advisory Committee for the FAA. And then people wonder, they're like, well, you know, we, we, we can't get any good regulation, and we don't understand what happened to Beyond Visualize. It's like, it's like if, if that, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to deride somebody. It's just like, you know aviation, and I've, I've you know, I've learned that that, you know, I'll let the, uh, the regulator take the, 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 the driver's seat on an industry that they don't know about, because you know they're always going to be looking at it with a 10 to the minus 9 eye. Not 10 to the minus 6 or 5 or 4 or feelings or anything else. They're going to be going 10 to the minus 9. And for anyone that doesn't know, it's a 10 to the minus 9 is basically once and never. It's just not happening. Right. <laughs> so, and that's just design. Yeah, in some cases that's what you need to design to, but in other cases you don't. And it's, it's kind of defining. I go back to what I said earlier in terms of what is the safety – safety risks that you are trying to protect against. Maybe it, it maybe you do need to, to do a 10 to the minus 9 sort of design. Um, certainly that's a lot of what's under Part 121, Part 25 operations. But do you really need that for some of the lower risk operations? Probably not. You know? the, the, exactly. the, 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 the problem, though, is, okay, now you integrate them into the same airspace. And now, how do you you got it? You got to reconcile that somehow, and that's not easy to do. But it's it's going to be required in order for the UAS and the AAM uh, operators in the future to be successful. We got to get that reconciled. Exactly. And that's going to roll right into my next questions because. Um, <laughs> And, you know, people, uh, oh, the beyond visual line of our uh, side arc. I think there were some, I don't know, 50 some odd people on there, man. And I look at the roster and you got the guy from the, you know, I don't know. It got ridiculous, the people that they had on there. And I'm not saying it's ridiculous because we don't want to be, have inclusion or diversity. But, you know, you can have a problem with over-diversification, you know. It's kind of like I, I, I... said during some of these standards groups that I wanted to be on, you know, part one of this part 121 arcs, you know, and my experience, you know, I eat that bag of peanuts on the way out here. So I know all about, you know, uh, running an arrow, which is obviously ridiculous because I know, (laughs) but, you know, you get somebody on there from, you know, the city park association, you know, you know, not going to make any sense. So anyway, (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, you got to keep that in perspective, and uh, when when you're you're doing this stuff. So some of the things that you hit on, right? You're right. I definitely believe you know beyond visual line of sight is doable now. You can scientifically quantify it. You may have to adjust, just like you said. So nothing's going to be. You cannot introduce anything into the world, and there be let's say no effect on safety or at least the potential. It, is, it can't be done that I know of. I may be wrong, but thinking about technology, there are those issues. So I want to do my beyond visual line of flight, sight flying, and this is going to be some of the other questions here. So there, there are, you know, and I, I, I bring this up. You know, there's like, there's the drone code. Okay. You know, this guy's been working on this uh, open source code for autopilots, which has been a big sense of source of contention 
since somebody, you know, ran that idea, hatched it, and ran it up the flagpole. And the first time that I heard that was during uh, was during small UAS arc, which I was a full member of. And they got this uh, guy from 3D Robotics, and they had him out there. And this was during the arc, and it was an ABSI. And he gets out there, and he's telling everybody how he is going to fly these drones around with open-source autopilots and the software. We're going to be doing this. And so, of course, in the front row, you got ALPA, AOPA, FAA, uh, HAI, NBAA. Yeah, they're all sitting there. And uh, yeah, it's on the commercial guy on the arc, and again, family show. So they came back, and they, they were like, this guy is an effing nut. That, this is never going to happen. And what are these people smoking and blah, blah, blah. So I had to kind of combat that. You know? I'm like, well, you know, some people are aspiring to do all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I told the guy at the time, if you come out there talking about this stuff, they're going to think you're totally insane. And uh, we're going to have to deal with the blowback on that. I even told the EBSI that putting putting this guy out there to do that, you're sabotaging the industry. But they didn't, you know, well, you know, anyway. All right. So now I want to talk about DO178 B and C. You know, I bring this up to the, the drone folks. Mm-hmm. And I go, you know, if you think you're going to get to fly in Class B airspace, Okay, Class Bravo, which is your big, you know, your SFOs, your Dallas, your LaGuardia, your, you know, Logan, whatever. You think you're going to be flying your autopilot drone around there, and it's going to be 55 pounds, whatever, 56 pounds you're going to be flying around there. Your software is going to need to be certified. I think I'm uh, right or wrong on that. Oh, I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I mean it, it makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. and, and this is a really this is one of those specifics that is a real challenge right now, um, in terms of developing a a shall we say a new software standard again, based upon the level of risk that you're trying to protect against. So, you know, DO178C is is kind of the basic standard now for large aircraft operations. Um, But even it needs to be modernized a bit based upon new technologies and software that have taken place and some of the research and development that's that's gone on in in both the industry and, and yes, even at the FAA. Um, So not only does the current applications of DO-178 need to be modernized a bit, Again, we need, also need to be thinking about creating a, a standard that's applicable to these lower risk operations. However, that's defined by the FAA. Um, and, and then at the same time, make them coexist together. And this is a challenge that we're facing at RTCA. We actually stood up a, a new special committee, I'm going to say two years ago now, it's SC240, that's addressing these two challenges. Um, modernizing the current software for our software standard for part 25 has been, I'll say, reasonably easy. But this other part has been a real challenge in terms of finding the right, um, A, it's been hard to finding the right people um, to, uh, to work it. Um, and then also trying to, trying to create a, a, a uh, 
um, a balance of, of folks that are, you know, traditionally only see software standards being one way or the highway and getting them moved over and saying, hey, look, we need to be looking at these lower risk operations and, and, and how can we um, define the standard a little bit differently or utilizing a different set of criteria or whatever it might, whatever it might be. But um, this is a, certainly an area that's, that has been a challenge, and we're right in the middle of this one as, as we speak. The, um, and again, at the same time, again, how do we get that all to coexist? So that the small UAS flying on is autopilot, that, yeah, is operationally utilizing a lower risk kind of operational uh, um, drone, but is operating in a higher risk type of airspace, again, how do we get that to coexist? And that's a challenge. I don't have the answer, unfortunately, but we are working on it. So, yeah. Well, you're going to ask the FAA to send over one of those magic ones. And, there you uh, go. It'll be good to go. Now, you know, so like I'm not trying to be, you know, a wet blanket or, you know, a, uh, let's say, you know, people would say, well, we don't really want to do the certification because it's going to slow down innovation and, and blah, blah, blah. I think we've, we've hit a little bit of a plateau on that. I kind of feel like, you know, when the, the computer, the 286, 386, 486, and we're actually to a point now where I think it really makes sense. So... I have suggested, you know, like I said, there's an effort called Drone Code, and these guys are all working together and trying to come up with standards, which is great. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's like kind of a, a you know, uh, let's say maybe it's you know, we're, we're uh, coming up with rules for our apple orchard, um, but there already are existing rules for to do that. So you're kind of out there doing your own thing. Maybe at one time they'll come together and they'll say, hey, you know, we need a DL-178D for drone or you for unmanned or uncrewed or whatever. But you really should get together and start working on this now. I mean, if it were me, I'd say, okay, let's get 5, 10, you know, 15 drone people in the room and ask if we can get maybe one or two uh, people that are, are familiar with the 178 variants mm -hmm. to shepherd us. And we're going to come up with something on our own here. And then we've got something to bring to the table. Now, the other issue that you have with, you know, this is, this is kind of the other thing that I have with the, the droners don't understand, is all of that safety comes at a price. And so, you know, I don't know if you know the current, what it costs to certify each line of code to the, the, the DO, 178. I heard it was like 100 bucks a line or something. So I've asked these guys, how many lines did it cost you? Oh, God, we got, you know. Well, one company said they had, uh, I think it was two or three very long lines of code. So that's a good answer. However, um, that's going to need to be certified, right? And, and the thing is with certification is people think, and this is, even goes for the blue UAS thing, they're thinking, oh, well, I get my, I get my software certified. And I'm good to go forever, and I can just do whatever I want. Uh, no. It's a snapshot in time. So wherever you are, and like you were talking about with the modernization and all the rest of that, um, even the space shuttle, people were like, oh, space shuttle. You know, they had computer tapes, and they had, you know, I think it was in a Halliburton briefcase. We got the launch sequence, throw the tapes in the computer. Oh, we got the, the orbit, 
uh, and then we have the uh, reentry. And, and and there's a reason for all of that because all this stuff is certified for manned space flight. Blah blah blah. So it's not a snapshot. It, it's that snapshot in time. So when you know the the new stuff comes out, you're kind of married to the old standard. Is that correct or that wrong? Yeah, I mean that's the way it is right now. Exactly. Which again is why we're trying to trying to. Um, I mean, if, if if you really do a good job in in writing a standard. It's it's performance based. You know what what does the uh, what does the box have to operate to? What does it you know what what performance levels does it have to meet? And some of those things don't change. How you how you actually meet that standard can change, but performance wise, generally those things change very slowly. But the technology, if you do the standard correctly, the technology should be able to change without a big change in the actual standard itself because the technology is how you apply apply the um, the performance level not not what the performance level is and and and, and that's why I, you know a lot of people you think you mentioned it look at standards as you know takes too long it slows down innovation etc um, don't disagree. Maybe some of that has been true in the past, but what, at least what I'm trying to do at RTCA and in conversations I have with the FAA is let's look at standards as a means of, of being in a, innovators to do new technology. If you've got a really good standard that people can, can design and build to right up front, then you get away from this bring me a rock mentality of saying, well, just bring me something if it meets the meets what we want to have. No, let's get the standard done. And now you, you eliminate, you can actually get technology moving much more quicker if you've got something that everybody agrees to that has to perform, you know, a condition that has to perform to. So I really look at standards as, as an enabler of new technology, not the other way around. Well, let's okay. So we're going real long, but let's let's the next one. The the, uh, the other I got like a whole herd of elephants uh, <laughs> behind me here. But uh, so um, AAM or UAM yep. or you know. So uh, were you at the NASA? They had that kickoff thing in Seattle. Were you there? No, or, I, was, I was not. I I did participate. The White House had a. Uh, an AAM um, kind of a strategy session about a month ago that I attended in DC. All right. Well, since you mentioned it, since you brought that up, because uh, I I saw that from afar and I was like, there were a couple of people I would call experts in the room, and I want to get into um, some of the nuts and bolts on that. But maybe you could give us a brief synopsis of, of what you saw from a firsthand account. Um, first of all, I thought from a um, uh, kind of big picture thing, it was it was it was good to see some emphasis on this uh, coming out of the administration in terms of putting some importance on AAM and trying trying to um, energize a lot of people on this topic. Um, that was the good news. I mean, unfortunately, like with anything, there wasn't a lot of action items that came out of it. So again, I think it's really going to be up to industry to um, take some of the 
the things we heard um, and actually go out there and start moving the needle on on, on advancing advanced air mobility, if you will. Um, because if we, if we wait again for the government to wave its magic wand, um, we'll be waiting a long time. So, um, you know, we're trying to do some things with some of our, our members that are involved in this space in terms of what are some things that we should be working on from a standards standpoint. How should we be um, connecting with the um, um, the research and development community, whether it's at the FAA or industry, uh, on this space in terms of what, you know, what needs to be done. Inside of, of RTCA, we're looking at a couple of things that are, are, are I think, important from the, for AAM. Um, certainly, again, to SC228, you know, we're, we're looking at recommendations for um, AAM surveillance and spectrum considerations. Um, we're looking at uh, one of our other committees is uh, SC147, for example, is looking at a new new means for uh, TCAS uh, that would be applicable to the AAM community. We're looking at enhanced vision systems, synthetic vision systems for AAM, uh, the need for lithium ion battery standards for high voltage. I mean, there's a big one that's going to be required. Um, we already talked about the software piece, um, and and then one of my favorite topics I think of, of in the recent years is, is is the allocation of spectrum in terms of how spectrum is going to be needed to actually a, a, allow for AAM to really move forward um, in and you know in terms of how these vehicles are going to communicate with each other, how they're going to communicate with the ground. Uh, what those frequencies that are going to be allocated for this are going to be a huge issue. It's going to be a huge safety issue that's going to need to be addressed. So a lot of things got us really thinking out of that that White House event. And, and but again, I think it's really going to come down to um, industry to kind of keep pushing forward and and, and moving moving the needle on this. Again, some sage advice. That's why we, you know, I like to have seasoned professionals on my podcast. Because guys like you come on, or people like you come on, and you know, kind of spell out, you know, what it's going to take. And and you know, so I want we did talk about the software. You know, there's the the Do three six five, the detect and avoid. There's, I mean, you know. And even the, the AAM thing. I mean, it sounds good to me, and it's exciting, the flying cars and all the rest of that. And people are like, oh, but you're so negative. It's like, look, man, you know, I haven't found any workarounds for the laws of physics yet, you know. I'm, I'm working on it. But I yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the battery stuff, these guys, it's like, okay, you know, you fly on dinosaur juice. When you're flying around, you become more efficient as you burn the dinosaur juice. But the batteries... You know, uh, you burn the energy, it's dead weight. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's you know, rules for, I, you know, you got to have a reserve, you got to have this. Oh, we can fly for, you know, yeah, okay. It, it, that's the everybody, when they, when they type of, talk about these hypotheticals, you know, the, well, it's like one drone and one aircraft or one drone and one AAM, and then we got, you know, there'll be another drone. Like for this deal, the pencil man, you know, you're gonna have the sky's gonna have to be dark with drones, and for the AAM thing to work, um, 
you're going to need lots of them running all the time. And they keep saying, you know, well, if you're going to steal the pencil, you know, it's going to have to, they're going to have to be autonomous, no crew on board. And then I'm just like, I don't know what dispensary you're, you know, visiting, but uh, you may want to, you know, take it down a notch because by time, in my mind, by time you have autonomous, self-learning, um, you know, passenger aircraft flying around cities. I mean, they're going to be like retired or dead. Do you think I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pessimistic or what? No, I, I mean, it's huge challenges. Let's just put it that way. Because, you know, what we're really looking at is, you know, these these new vehicles that, that keep getting developed. I mean, they've got different capabilities and they're being introduced all the time. Um, but they all have a common need, and that's having access to the airspace in which to fly. And, you know, the airspace is limited. It's not unlimited. So as, as, you, start, as you start looking at how airspace gets commoditized, um, you really got to start thinking about what are the requirements or, I mean, how can we efficiently get some of all these different capabilities, different vehicles with different capabilities into that airspace. And, and you know, one of the things we've been talking about a little bit with um, inside some of our committees and some of our members is, you know, are, are different rules going to be required to access the airspace that go beyond VFR or IFR? Uh, we're talking about a concept called digital flight rules that have totally different clearance and visibility requirements based on the aircraft type. They, they may be actually flying through clouds without a flight plan because they've got the right detect and avoid sensors, for example. And, and this is really, for, from a traditional guy like me, this is scary stuff. But I think we need to be our thinking about things like this um, because it's good to, we have to be thinking about this whole new paradigm of, of um, flying flights into cloudy, maybe less than VFR days um, without the tradition, you know, in, a, in an uncrewed vehicle or because they have the right capabilities as, as a vehicle to do it safely. But then we go back to what we talked about earlier, say, okay, um, how are we going to gather the data to validate, validate this actually is safe? Is this hypothesis even going to work, you know? But these are but again, we need to be changing that paradigm of, of beyond just what we traditionally think of, of VFR operations and IFR operations and what needs to be done um, to maybe change the way we think about our, our access to the airspace, the, the rules that we have to access the airspace. So um, hmm. really wild stuff, I know, but, but yeah, uh, you know, some uh, things yeah. I've been thinking about. <laughs> and this is the stuff that needs to be thought about. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm too pessimistic, but so let me qualify my retired or dead statement. I've noticed in life that, uh, you know, it's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, but nothing's impossible if you throw enough money at it. NASA's trying to disprove that theory right now with the SLS, but that's all another story. Um, so I think with the AAM thing, um, and also the drone thing and UTM and, you know, frequencies and all the all the stuff that you're talking about. Uh, you know, NASA did put out a pretty comprehensive roadmap for AAM of what needed to be done. 
And, and I mean, I, I read through that, and I'm like, man, they, they got a lot of good input because almost everything was in here. You know, they got the kitchen sink. They got everything in there. And what I'm looking at that is I'm looking about a good billion dollars of research, unfunded, uh, not, you know, uh, let's say accounting for inflation. I mean, there is just a ton of stuff that needs to be done. So industry, and it's the same with the drone thing. It's like, you know, even UTM, they're like, people are wringing their hands that nothing's getting done. And I make a joke. As I was on the funding call prior to the UTM thing kicking off on NASA. I was the only civilian. And I go, okay, well, wait a minute. What, what do you guys want to do? Oh, you know, they want to integrate everything into the NASA, everywhere, doing everything, and from the little stuff to the global hawks and and I go, and how, how much money are you asking for? Oh, yeah, $100 million, blah, blah. It's not enough money. <laughs> and it really pissed a lot of people off, you know. But I'm like, it's it just not, you know, same deal. You know, you want to, let's start over here with the, uh, you know, something small. And maybe we can integrate that. Um, and so now people are wringing their hands. They're like, oh, you know, FAA was supposed to pick up the ball from NASA and run with it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They didn't do anything. Because it's a huge lift and it's unfunded. And, you know, um, they're not going to build all of this for you for free. That's another uh, total misconception that these uh, people have is uh, that this is all going to be free. And then it's all going to get built for free. And it's all going to get certified for free. That's just not happening. So the flying car uh, thing, you know, so I'm working for another company now. And we're out there, uh, the, the contract that we have is out there sniffing for frequency GPS anomalies and things like this in, in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And I, I, when I look at that, it's like, you know, you're, you, you, you'd mentioned this stuff. As far as I'm concerned, the, the bedrock um, issues have not been even approached. And everybody's, oh, I'm going to have type, I'm going to have my type certification. We're going to be doing this at the Olympics in 2022. And, and it's like you're dreaming. And even if you go get your TC, then you got to go get your PC. And I, I use an example of the uh, Honda Jet. I mean, you're aware of that mm-hmm. process. It took them, let it take them 10 years, a billion dollars. And, and, you know, Honda's got some experience. It, you know, and I think we're seeing, you know, one, I was actually on a panel with a, with the guy not too long ago, and I liked, liked the way he put it, too. He said, um, we don't like to be called new entrants anymore. We want to be called new enterprises because many, many, many of the new entrants, at least, look, I'm thinking traditionally now we're talking new entrants. That's kind of an oxymoron, but, but um, um, so, so many of the, the new entrants that have been around a while have really the mature ones have actually taken a, a more I would say proactive under they've come to learn aviation uh, better than they did at the beginning and you know they're understanding the language more they're understanding what we um, we go through in aviation to establish a, you know, a safe operating environment and the use of data and that sort of things. Um, and so we're, we're, I'm seeing a, a, a bit of a shift in some of these more mature new entrants, new enterprises in, in taking over that, which is a good thing. But, it, but you know, it's 
I also say it's kind of a two-way street. You know, I think on the aviation, traditional aviation side, we need to be listening too in terms of what it is that these new entrants, these new enterprises are trying to accomplish. Um, what are the technologies that they're, they're trying to implement? Um, because I actually think that some of these new technologies they, they're trying to put into uh, un, uncrewed, unmanned operations maybe have some great applicability to manned operations that could help raise the safety bar there too. So all mm -hmm. these, this, this, this joint working together with, with you know, both traditional groups as well as the, the new enterprises, I think is so very important from a, a communications and, and sharing thing because it's through that that we gain that understanding and we can actually work together to, to come up with solutions that are, that are beneficial for everyone. I would agree with that. I think that there's going to be a lot of that. I remember early on, you know, you had people from uh, primarily AOPA. Oh, we need an equivalent level of safety, you know, from, from the drone people. And I was like, ooh, I, I don't know if I'd bang that drone too hard. Because what's going to happen, you know, uh, this one's totally technology-based, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, things are going to... And I, I think we're at that point now, you know, with the... the, the uh, Drone thing has been legal long enough that uh, there somebody could actually run safety numbers, although the, the record keeping with the uh, FAA is not so bueno. Um, and they are going to come out with another statement. And that, you know, this is the thing that kind of bugs me with this is even the FAA is getting in on the action, where supposedly there have been all these collisions with helicopters and aircraft. And I'm like, well, if you don't show me the data, I'm not buying because um, they that's kind of the way they act, and that's kind of what I'm. You know, give and take it that I want. I'm not going on here, said. But in closing on this deal, so there's a lot of, you know, we did talk a little bit about software. So there's a lot of people that have misconceptions about uh, software. And some people are think that pre-programmed is autonomous. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where you have AI. And, you know, AI all sounds great. You know, I don't want anybody giving it guns. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. But from a, uh, let's say, standards perspective, I can't, how, how are you going to certify self, you know, AI? Have you, have it, has there been any talk about that? Standards for that? Uh, not directly. I mean, there, there's some, there's some standards work going on with some of the other standards organizations in the AI machine learning. Um, the, the, the thing that when I start talking to folks about AI and machine learning is, is, is that, again, sometimes I think we're trying to boil the ocean with it. We're trying to make AI and ML cover everything. And we're, we're, not, we're not looking at those, you know, specific use cases of a particular area that we could actually, let's apply some things about with AI to that part of the operation or the, or the performance or whatever. Let's, let's do it one, one or two things at a time. Let's learn from it. Let's learn what does need to be certified, what doesn't need to be certified, how we're going to certify it. Based, but, but just specific you know, microcosms of the entire operation. Let's start small. And figure that out, and then learn learn from those successes, and then build it up and gradually get bigger and bigger. 
too much work is being done that's just like it's all over the map. It's not focused. And um, I really think it needs to be a lot more focused in terms of, of where it's applicable and where it's not applicable. And, and you know, so there shows your experience, okay? Because so, what's going to happen is it's the same thing with the drone thing. Is you're going to have burnout. You're going to have people yeah. eventually, oh, yeah, I, I try. These people were jerks. You know, questioning me on everything, and I'm out of here. You know, I know a guy. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think that is good advice, and, and those are the things that need to be tempered. But you know, like okay, so you get the room of people together, and you know, I mean, this is very diverse. So I, I, you know, I think they have to be smaller groups. I, I had called for a, a drone czar. I had this drone czar proposal, you know, where somebody mm. would be like a liaison between industry and the regulator, but that person would have to be knowledgeable. And again, there, there are some folks out there, but it can't be somebody that could be snowed, you know, they need to know what's going on. I mean, yeah, it sounds like, you know, you know the nuances of um, the standards thing. It's, I don't, I don't think that anything's getting by here. You sound very knowledgeable on this. I'm impressed with that. But again, that's why we have, uh, people like you on the shows because I don't want to waste anyone's time. I mean, the stuff that's on, that you gave today, the, the answers to these questions, if I was going to get into, you know, I think I need to get into the standards thing with my products or my service or whatever. Uh, this is worth, you know, a thousand consulting right here. And that's kind of what we try to do. So what I'd like from you is, because you guys have a great list of, uh, Available documents, and I'm, I'm on your website now, which is, I usually tell the guest to give it, but it's, uh, this one's easy, so I'm going to do it. So it's www.rtca.org. So I, you know, some of these guys have these websites, like my dad, that's like, yeah, no one will ever remember that in a million years. Yeah, but it sounds great. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> This one's good, simple, rtca.org. And there's a, I mean, a list of documents here. And then you guys charge. I mean, how much do the standards, uh, there's probably a range. What, what do they cost? Well, it, um, there's, there's several ways to get our standards. One is you can, you can become a member of RTCA, and depending upon the revenues of your company, depends on what the, uh, the annual fees are to be a full member. And as a full member of RTCA, you can participate on our committees and have a voice in, in developing the standards. And if you are a member, the standards that um, all of our standards are available for free. They're part of your, they're part of your, your membership at RTCA. Um, we do offer the ability to, if you're not a member, to, to buy our standards. And it really kind of runs the gamut depending upon the size of the standards. So some of ours are as low as, you know, uh, $100, $125, up to seven or 800 for some of the larger, you know, 1,000-page uh, standards documents. Um, so it kind of depends. But um, the best is becoming a member because then you have a voice um, in, in terms of, of being able to uh, be on the different special committees that we have and, and get your voice heard and, and um you know, have a have a say in how this, you know, what gets developed. All right. And, you know, if you don't want to uh, jump at the pool, you know, you want to put your toe in the water, a uh, great mm -hmm. opportunity uh, to to maybe pick one of these. I'd like to do the other one, the DO365A, 
the mops for detecting a void. You know, if you want to be in the drone. I said, I tell you, if you don't have uh, certified detecting a void on your drone, you're dreaming. Because that's just that. Again, I don't see you playing out. Ah, we're, not, we're just in Bravo. and I got my ADSB, bro. I'm good. You know, you're dreaming. Not happening. So if I want to read that. Oh, you might want to even read the DO-178. might give you a little bit of insight and perspective into what you're getting into. Now, I'm looking at the themes here, and I don't see, you know, uh, industry curmudgeon on here. I don't see pessimist. I see industry government. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> people do need to get involved in this if they want to be in this industry. So, when you when you talk about the software development, I mentioned one of the challenges, you know, with with SC two forty is developing that, you know, new standards for the low risk operations. This is where we really need some help. We need we need folks from from your community to to get involved because um, we need to hear you, your voice is very important. Um, we can't let it get drowned out by other people. We need your voice in in terms of, of you know helping us with that because. It is, you folks are the experts at RTCA. We're not the experts. We just help bring everybody together. But it's the it's the, the folks that are out there in the field that are the real experts on this stuff. So we we can certainly use your help. Well, and uh, you know you're helping yourself really um, if exactly. you want to be in this business. So did, was there was there anything else that I missed? I mean we went uh, really long on this deal, which is okay. But uh, did, did I miss anything else? That, um, no, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, um, you know, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come here and, and talk about uh, things that we're doing at RTCA and um, the some of the challenges that we're facing as an industry. Uh, some of these are RTCA specific, as you've heard, but some of them are more industry, you know, uh, a broader industry thing that's going to where maybe we only play a small part. Um, but uh, no, I, I think we covered a lot of material. I appreciate it. And um, if anybody has any questions, um, they're more, more than happy to contact me through, you can get, get a hold of me through the RTCA website and be happy to answer any questions you might have. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, like I said, you know, the, uh, what the, the answers to the question, uh, there's some real value in this show. So I appreciate that. Hope to run into you in the future. If there's anything I can ever do or we can ever do for you over at SUAS News, please let us know. Um, we're all about trying to, um, let's say, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. We're ready to go. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good, uh, have a good one. And thanks again for being on, and we'll talk to everyone next time. Right. Thanks, Patrick. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.